Good morning. Good to see you. Thank you. For those of you who don't know, this is Eddie Lyle, who heads up an organisation called Open Doors. So, Eddie, tell us, what is Open Doors? Well, a, a little-known evangelist called Brother Andrew came here a few months ago, apparently. Is that right? Uh, that is right. Courageous man of God, Bible smuggler. Uh, we're still doing it. You're probably the first people in Oxford to see these two pieces of literature. They're smuggled Bibles into North Korea. This is an Old Testament, one of four pieces. It's called a sock Bible. You can tell why it's called a sock Bible. You discreetly put it in your sock. Just uh, three months ago, 50,000 of these were taken into Pyongyang for distribution to the Church of Jesus Christ. I find it humbling because the people who transported these literally have taken their lives into their hands. Why do people put their lives into God's hands because they've been touched by the love of Christ and they will never be the same again. They understand that people are hungry, they're desperate, they need hope, and they'll do absolutely everything to make God's word accessible. So if there was ever to be something symbolic of the heartbeat of open doors, it actually uh, is this. But you might also like to know that today in Cairo... 50 miles south of Cairo, 21,000 people are meeting in the desert. This time last year, 7,000 people gave their hearts to Christ at this outreach camp, and it's happening today. What kind of church engages in proclamation evangelism in the midst of the Arabic Spring and the slaughter of its people? What kind of people are they there people of the book, God's people. So, last week in Lahore, two and a half thousand people went uh, into a tent in the middle of Lahore to hear God's word every night for seven nights. What kind of a church is it that stands up in an Islamic predominant community and preaches the life-transforming gospel of Christ? Open Doors is there to support and strengthen that type of outreach. That's why Andrew did what he did, has set that kind of legacy before us, and we're trying to be faithful to God and following it. That's amazing. Thank you very much. Uh, And allied to that, I know that today is the day uh, where the church across the globe has been encouraged to be aware of the persecuted church. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Yeah, I'd love to. Today is the International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church. 300,000 churches around the world today are on their knees in prayer for the persecuted church. 50 nations where the church of Christ is under pressure today. We want to be on our knees in prayer and our feet in action. And here in the United Kingdom, one of the things that we're doing is focusing upon the children of the persecuted church. I'm going to be talking in a moment about the reality of what it means to be a cross-carrier today in the contemporary world that uh, God has placed his church. But we have a vision to transform the lives of 10,000 children that have been directly impacted by persecution. We've got a little video. We'd love you to watch it right now. Eddie's going to come and speak to us shortly. But before we do that, I'd like us to actually do what the video has encouraged us to do and pray. And he's just going to lead us in how to do that right now. Uh, and then after that, uh, he'll come speak to us.
Father, together we, we lift our hearts to you for a, a church that experiences things that is beyond our comprehension. But Lord, I thank you that somehow in the midst of all the, the trauma and the pain, there are thousands upon thousands of people who have stories of the God that was there for them, the one who remains close. Lord, we do thank you that you're the God that hears our cry too, and together we're lifting our hearts this morning to you for a church under pressure, a church under persecution, and for young lives, Lord God, that you've captured and that you've touched, but in their innocence find themselves victims of oppression and injustice, children who experience fear in a way that none of us feel is just. And Lord, we're asking that you would come to those children right now, as we've been encouraged to do, and we lift them before you, Lord God, and pray that you would be their father and that the love that we've experienced this morning would touch their lives in deep and profound ways that they would know what it is to have a father that loves them and to experience a security and a peace that passes all understanding. Lord, we ask this, that you would indeed strengthen your church, that your kingdom would go forward and that you would be glorified. And Father, we thank you for this brother. We thank you for bringing him among us this morning. And as he shares what you've placed on his heart right now, we pray that you would strengthen him, that you give him liberty. Holy Spirit, that you would be very present. You give us ears to hear. Lord, I pray again that you'd help us to be not just hearers of your word, but doers. In Jesus' name. Mm. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Keith. In a sense, I'm comforted by the stunned silence that followed that DVD. Uh, because I think there would be something profoundly wrong with us if there wasn't that kind of uh, empathetic connection. And, and God's word goes before us, of course. He says that when one part of the body hurts, the whole body hurts. And one of the roles that Open Doors has is to try and bring these muscles and sinews, these bits of the nervous system of the body together, so that for those who are completely oblivious to the reality of the fact that there is a persecuted church, I've been uh, working in this environment now for well over 12 years, uh, and I still go to churches where people are saying, I didn't even know there was a persecuted church. How can it be so? Uh, even teaching in seminary, meeting students who said, I, I didn't know. God have mercy. We pray for a better day, for a connected day. Keith, thanks for the generosity of your welcome. Uh, we had coffee the other day. It's my first time to minister in this context, and uh, it was just good to feel that uh, connection. Uh, Visiting preachers are strange creatures, you know, because we kind of step out of a different planetary system and land in your planet. Um, 
I'm Northern Irish. I'm married to a Scot. I have an English son and an Irish dog. Um, We live in Whitney. Um, uh, My theology and doctrine, I think I'm a a thinking charismatic, if that's not an oxymoron. (laughs) I'm I'm willing to be proven wrong, but I haven't been yet. Um, And this morning, you've uh, extended to me the privilege of talking about the subject of mission, for which I'm humbled, and particularly in the light of the prophetic words that came to us earlier, you have no idea what I'm about to say, but I think that there is a kind of a thing going on here in the spirit. Uh, Are you familiar with the the musical phrase, a recapitulation? Uh, Are you familiar with a phrase called the recapitulation? If you don't interact with me, this is going to be a very long and lengthy (laughs) sermon today, I I have to tell you. A recapitulation is a kind of a, a, a mini tune, an echo that resonates through a piece of score of musical script that echoes again and again and again. If you've been to see the movie True Grit, you would be astonished to find the recapitulation of the the old hymn, I'm leaning on the everlasting arms, and it echoes again and again through the text and subtext. Well, let's just see what the Spirit has been doing amongst us, and let's have an ear to heaven as you listen to a man, a fragile man with maybe some words from heaven. We'll find out later. I'm talking about mission, so therefore I've got to talk about love. Love and mission are inextricably linked, you know. I love the story about the couple that were married for 50 years. They're in bed late at night. She turns to him and said, Do you remember when we first got married? There were moments when you reached out and held my hand. It's been a long time. Do you think we could hold hands? So his gnarled hand reaches out and holds her gnarled hand. And they have a moment to remember of the love that they've cherished for 50 years. Can you hear the orchestra playing in the background? (laughs) Just relax. I'm a minister of the gospel. Then... She said, do you think it might be possible for us to have a cuddle? It's been a long time since we've had a cuddle. So he moves into the bump in the middle of the bed that happens after you get married for a long time. I've been married for 28 years. His arms reach out and they hold each other. And it's lovely. Everything went quiet. And then she turned to him and she said, Do you remember when we were first married? You used to nibble my ear. It's been a very long time. Do you think it might be possible? And the sheets were pulled back and he leapt out of bed and ran to the bathroom. And she was broken hearted and said, how could you possibly do that to me? In my moment of desperate need, you leap out of the bed. And he said, for goodness sake, women, I'm just on my way to get my false teeth. The banality of that story, well, we'll try and somehow forge it together to make some sense about what mission is like. But (laughs) I've been married for 28 years. I remember so vividly when Christine and I got married, we turned up in large to our honeymoon. Her grandmother had given us her apartment. 
There was a fire burning in the lounge. There was fresh roses on the table. We went upstairs, took our suitcases upstairs, and there were two single beds in the bedroom. (laughs) Being a Boy Scout, I moved the two beds together. We went out for an evening meal, came back, got her jimmy jams on, jumped into bed. I thought, it's now or never. I reached out to hug her and disappeared between the two beds. (laughs) Love compels us. Love compels us to do all kinds of extraordinary things. That's the link, Keith. You're relaxed. We can move on. But I want to ask you this morning, do you love God's word? 7,704,747 words in this Bible. 66 books written by 40 authors over 1,500 years of landscape. And if there was to be a meta-theme in this word, it would be that God is desperate for relationship with humankind. That is the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. And his heart... His compassion beats for humankind. He is desperate for relationship. And somehow, some way, he has inextricably linked his mission to humanity, to his church. The church is the only institution that was ever conceived for the benefit of its non-members. This morning's message is something of a pastiche of maybe the thoughts and words of wiser ones than me, but I want to stay true to the theme, the theme of God being a missionary, a missionary God from Genesis to Revelation. I've been a Christian for a long time, 41 years this year, and some heroes have inextricably linked uh, shit my worldview. One is John Wimber. And uh, when I came into the fullness of the Holy Spirit, his book, Power Evangelism, was one of the compulsory reads. And listen to what he said. It all started in 1962. A new Christian, I was to attend my first church service. I was so excited about what God would be doing in the gathering I was also very naive. I had rarely attended church services as a non-Christian. And having created an idealized picture of church, I'd built up only a few weeks ago of gleaning in the scriptures. I was prepared for what awaited. I anticipated training in spiritual warfare and equipping to advance the kingdom of God I envisioned Christians coming together, singing and praying, receiving encouragement or exhortation from Scripture, then dispersing throughout Orange County, California to perform dramatic healings, expel demonic spirits, oppose evil authorities. Then I thought that we would return later in the day with new converts and reports of great miracles, overflowing with joy and worshipping God. It was a vision taken from the book of Acts. What I discovered was that most Christians do not come together to prepare for battle with Satan and conquer territory for Jesus Christ. They enjoy talking about the battle. 
They usually prayed for the battle. They sang and preached about the need to advance God's kingdom, even weeping for it. And then they went home to secure lives far from the battlefields. Christian doctrine was so tenaciously defended, was circumscribed by business and family and recreational commitments. Upon reflection now, after my first church service, I felt cheated because I had joined Christ's army in order to do his works. It's not too much to expect, is it, for the church to look like the book? But does it look like the book? I came to Jesus in the midst of a revival. Um, And you know, I'm not satisfied with anything else but that. Something happened. I was met by a street evangelist who came up and told me that Jesus would take away all of my problems. Well, actually, I've got more in trouble (laughs) since being a Christian than I did before I was a Christian. And my youth leader told me, write this down to some students here. He said that when you take up the cross to follow Jesus, read the red bits and pray for the power. Now you might think that's empty triumphalistic nonsense. But actually, if you were to dare to behave like that, if you were prepared to accept that almost nonsensical idea in its simplicity and apply it in your life, then our churches would look an awful lot different. I'm not so much speaking to this church. I suppose this message is a a message for the churches of our nation. You'll have to work out how it fits for you. But when I became a Christian, there was almost this instantaneous revelation that came into my heart that I was saved for a purpose. That this was not some form of convenient action by the Holy Spirit, but that the moment that the Holy Spirit exploded within me, the shape and the destiny and the purpose of my life was actually being catalyzed in those moments. Do you feel like that? What's the purpose of your life? Why are you here? Is it for the convenience of church and just to enjoy this experience? Is there something behind it? In that moment of conversion, the Holy Spirit came to me. And well, I'm not ashamed to tell you, but I had a dream of becoming a medical missionary. And so I I went to college to train uh, in that respect, went to train to be a nurse. And I was 17 years of age, and uh, I was sent to a psychogeriatric hospital on the other side of Belfast called Purdysburn that looked like Stagaluft 34. It had 40-foot walls with barbed wire rolled on the top. And when you went inside, it smelled of boiled cabbage and Dettol. And I was put into, as I said, a psychogeriatric unit. Put your hand up if you've ever seen the movie One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. It's kind of a shaper 
of humankind's understanding about mental illness. Well, it was worse than that. And uh, I was a Christian six months. And in my naivety, I believed that God could change the world. Do you know, I still believe that today, 41 years later. And I'm not prepared to let go of that thought either. And as a 17-year-old, I was given George Coffin to take care of. Unfortunate name. He was 47 years of age, and he was suffering from premature senile dementia. In other words, his brain was dead. And he had an amputated right leg, and he'd had a stroke the year before. I was uh, consigned to commission to look after him. And I had to turn him every 30 minutes, and I had to change his nappy as a 17-year-old. I had never touched another human being intimately before, and I had to brush his teeth and brush his hair. And, you know, I looked to the God of all glory, the God of all creation, and I looked at George Coffin and I said, are you who they say you are? Are you who they say you are? Because he was dead in bed, and I rolled him every 30 minutes, and I put embrocation upon him. And as I prayed, the Lord said, read the scriptures to him. Now, you might think that that's pure, naive, Ulster Protestant fundamentalism. And frankly, I don't care if you do. Because that's what I did. And when I looked into his eyes, his eyes were alive. But his body was dead. But I read the scriptures to him. And then as my understanding started to grow and develop... I learned some of the fundamental principles of occupational therapy. And one day, I brought some paper and pens and crayons, and I'd graduated to reading the scriptures and what was happening in Ireland. And as I read the story of the war, his eyes were full of emotion. And then I went away uh, for my lunch. And when I came back, I went to the bedside And on the piece of paper, there was a drawing of a cottage with a white picket fence with flowers in the garden and birds flying in the sky and the sun shining. Who had drawn the picture? Was it some well-intentioned ward assistant? No, it wasn't. It was George Coffin. Because he'd reached out of his imprisonment and expressed the sense of freedom and liberty that was going on in his head, but no one had ever connected with him. And I took the piece of paper and I ran to the charge nurse and I said, this is what George Coffin has just communicated. And he said, you're telling a lie. And I said, I'm not. And within six months, George Coffin had undergone speech therapy and he was out of bed and he was speaking and he was moved into a different ward still struggling with senile dementia, but he had learned to communicate and he'd been saved. Do you know, I have never, ever been able to let go of that moment of revelation that God will always use what we bring to him, what we have, 
Because you and I will never be ready for evangelism. You will never be holy enough. You will never be educated enough. You will never be anointed enough. You will never have your acts together enough. But in your fragility and humanity, God still called you to bring what you have and offer it to him. Turn with me to the scriptures, if you'd be so kind. I've entitled this message, What Kind of Love Is This? I want to read together some thoughts from the book of Luke. Reading from the 10th verse. When the apostles returned, they reported to Jesus what they'd done. Then he took them with him, and they withdrew by themselves to a town called Bethesda. But the crowds learned about it, and they followed him. He welcomed them and spoke to them about the kingdom of God, and he healed those who needed healing. Late in the afternoon, the twelve came to him and said, Send the crowd away so that they can go to the surrounding villages and countryside and find food and lodging, because we are in a remote place here. He replied, You give them something to eat. They answered, We've only five loaves of bread and two fish unless we go and buy food for the crowd. About 5,000 men were there. But he said to his disciples, Have them sit down in groups of about 50. The disciples did so, and everyone sat down, taking the five loaves and the two fishes, and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke it. Then he gave them to the disciples to distribute to the people. They all ate and were satisfied, and the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. Once when Jesus was praying in private and his disciples were with him, he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others that the one of the prophets of long ago has come back. But what do you, but what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? Peter answered, God's Messiah. Now turn back to the book of Luke, to the 28th chapter. You've heard this a hundred times, but read it with me. Matthew 28 Verse 16. I'll read it, you listen in. Then the disciples, the eleven disciples, went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all of the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey me everything that I've commanded you. And surely I will be with you to the very end of the age. You give them something to eat. You know, in my moments of brevity and levity, you can tell that I enjoy a bit of humor. It's almost like a Python-esque sketch, this, I sometimes think. They come to him, there's 5,000 men there. I strongly suspect the men had their families as well. So there are thousands of people, get them into groups of 50 and you feed them, you know. They look at each other in a John Cleese-esque manner, you've got to be joking, you know. You feed them, well feed them with what? 
And then they bring a child before him with five loaves and fishes. Two truths here very quickly. Some problems require God's direct intervention. It's so true. Some of the issues in the communities that you're part of as missional communities, only a supernatural revelation and presence of God himself will break into it. But what I love to see through the verses of Scripture, that the disciples were right to be concerned about the people's hunger, but intended to solve the problem in a purely natural way. And our expectations of what God can do is often far too small. Providing food in the wilderness was technically impossible. But God had used Moses and Elijah and Elisha in feeding miracles. You see, he's a missionary God from Genesis to Revelation. He's a God of patterns and rhythms and approaches. And part of the skill of being a minister of the gospel and being a leader is to look for patterns and symbols and approaches. What is the Holy Spirit saying? And so feeding multitudes by natural means is, of course, appropriate in some instances But the God that we worship is somebody who excels at supernatural intervention. So both Elisha's disciples and Jesus' disciples should have been fully aware. They should have known the master long enough to know that something of far greater significance was going to kick off around them. And then the simplicity of the thought, but it's absolute truism. God often begins with what we have. You know, all of your life, all of your experiences, all of your circumstances, he's prepared to take you on. But he's sufficiently a gentleman to have you, invite you, to say, who do you think I am? Who do you say that I am? And then prove it for yourself. You know, I wrestled with the possibility this morning of spending 30 minutes in sophisticated apologetics with you. And it would have been great. We'd have had a fantastic time. But would it have made you move from where you are to where the Holy Spirit is leading you? Absolutely not. Because what needs to happen to humanity, what happened to me was that God broke my heart with the reality of a revelation of what happens to human beings that navigate through life without him. God broke my heart over George Coffin, and that implicated me in the solution. That's a kingdom pattern and a kingdom rhythm. Stott said this, before we can begin to see the cross as something done for us, we have to see it as something done by us. You know, persecuted Christians get this. You know, this Bible is the only book that promises you that your sins will be forgiven if you confess your sins and put your trust and faith in Jesus Christ. This book is the only book that promises you that when you surrender your life to Jesus Christ, you will spend all eternity with him. This book reminds you that God is not some form of a distant deity, but he is Abba. He is Father. And when a Muslim has a revelation of this, they cannot sit on it. 
because they've lived an oppressive life of subjugation and an engagement with a God who is full of retribution and judgment, but you could certainly never call him daddy. And that's what gets them in trouble. Has the cross become dislocated from the center of our hearts? You know, I was birthed into the kingdom of God in the midst of revival. My youth group went from four to 120 in one year. And why did it go from four to 120 in one year? Is because we met in prayer and intercession and wept over our friends because they were lost in their trespasses and sins. You know, this is old truth. Some will say, it's not relevant. But you can't argue with me that it's not biblical. It is biblical. And if the cross of Christ is dislocated from the center of your heart, then you will have no compassion for the lost. You will have no love for those that are hungry. You will not be interested at all in this flock that is without a shepherd because you'll be so self-centered and self-interested that it's not important. So is the cross in its rightful place in your heart? It's a hard question, but it's said with love because this is a God of love. This is a love story. This is a romance. Andrew talks about God's word being Father's book. He wants to love the lost into the kingdom. I'm often asked about what does the persecuted church have to teach us about mission. Well, we could be here for the rest of the year. I want to take you to Indonesia, to a story that transformed my life. You may wonder what those three little ladies could possibly have done. Were they pedophiles? Well, actually, they were Sunday school teachers, and they were given three and a half years in prison for running a street Sunday school for the uh, children of prostitutes and street vendors. As a democratic society, there were 400 extremists in the court, and they went to jail because... They believed that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Dr. Rebecca was a doctor, well, obviously, a general practitioner. Two mums put in Indramayo State Penitentiary. Really scary environment for them. Let me tell you about their story. During the first three months in prison, the authorities did not fully understand, the prison authorities didn't fully understand who these prisoners were. So they were put in an exclusion block amongst nine other women. And the environment was so destructive that police, the uh, prison guards went in in body armor with shields. These women were so desperate. And they put these three ladies in prison in the same community. The walls of the prison were covered with excrement. The floor was running with urine. Dr. Rebecca 
as the pastor of the church, how would you conduct yourself? She'd been stripped of her medical practice certificate because she was now a criminal there in that prison situation. Well, she opened her suitcases along with the other two ladies, took their clothes out, asked for disinfectant and washed the cells of the other prisoners before washing their own. And then for the weeks that were to follow, fed them with their food rations because that's what happens. There isn't care, so people have got to bring in food. Into the middle of that period of uh, orientation and extreme uh, threats and all kinds of victimization by prison guards, one of them came to Rebecca and said, I'm ill. Could you please give me some advice about what's the matter with me? How would you have reacted if you'd have been in that situation? Well, she cared for him, gave him a piece of paper, told him what medication to go and get from a local pharmacy. He was immediately healed. And the next week, four prison guards came and said, Dr. Rebecca, could you possibly help me, please? They continued to care for the ladies in the prison cells. At the end of the third month, the prison uh, warden, the superintendent, called them to his office and said, you have been a blessing to this prison. How would it be if your church comes to the prison on Sundays and they can worship in safety and security here. That's the service that I spoke at. This uh, lady is an Al-Qaeda terrorist. This lady was in for grievous bodily harm. If you gave her $5, she would beat up anybody to the point of death. This is a drug smuggler. It's that kind of environment, and this is prison block, Juanita standing at the door. I like traveling in the Far East. I'm a tall man. Um, (laughs) It's a sobering experience. But to sit on the floor with them in 102 degrees of heat and read letters that came from people like you, 2,700 of them, they knew that they weren't alone. And they lived the gospel in that situation. And it was one of the most humbling experiences just to be behind prison for those three days and to the smile, you know, the challenges that they were facing. Between them, there are nine secret children that they left behind at home with three husbands, of course. And Rebecca, in the middle, took me for a walk. And uh, she said, do you see the bars and the keys? I said, yes. Do you see the gun emplacements? There was 4,000 other men in that prison, by the way. It was a huge city prison facility with nine women. I said, yes. And she said, this is my university of trust. Did you catch that? She said, Brother Eddie, do you know Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 and 6? I said, yes, I do. Shall we say that together? Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. She said, every second of every minute of every hour of every day, I've got to trust the Lord with all my heart. Well, thanks to people like you, they were released from prison a year early. And when they...
42 new Christians because they trusted in the Lord with all their heart and didn't lean on their own understanding and all their ways acknowledged him and he directed their paths. Their marriages stayed together. The church stayed together and grew. And the week after they were released from prison, they went back in to disciple the people that they'd led to Christ. What does that say about the heart condition of someone who's given everything for the gospel. She said to me as I left, if we're not being persecuted, we have to ask ourselves, are we truly followers of Christ? You know, is there enough evidence to convict you for being a Christian, even apart from being part of a missional community? It's a very uncomfortable truth. You know, the Lord knows the privacy of the prayers I've been praying for today. I simply come to you as God's servant today asking you, do you need a heart transplant? I could get up to all kinds of theatrics. I could kneel down and I could cry. Not necessary. There's a father that's already crying. I just want to invite you to close your eyes right now because I'm just going to ask the Holy Spirit to come and work. See, apologetics won't make you move. The theory of evangelism and missiology won't develop a sufficient intellectual apologetic in your mind that will make you function and live differently. Only the Holy Spirit can make you convinced that you have got to be part of the commissional challenge. You might even want to kneel as God comes amongst us. No, that's your choice. But I just want to ask you, do you need a different heart attitude? Do we want the gospel to come to Oxford? Do you want it to come to your university? Do you want it to come to your hall? Do you want him to come to where you live, to the people that you live with? Do you care enough for the lost to want your family to be there with you in this faith relationship with Christ? Maybe you might like to respond by just speaking out the names of the least and the lost. They're near to you that are dear to you or you want them to be sufficiently dear to you that they become part of your prayerful intercessions. Lord, in your mercy, will you come amongst us now? Will you change hearts to hearts of flesh? the least and the last and the lost. Call out their names to the Father as he moves amongst us by his Spirit now. Your mercy, Lord. Father, this is a work that only you can do. I invite you now by your spirit just to come to us.
we realize that we'll never be fully fit, fully able, fully prepared to be your messengers, to be your servant. But Lord, today we take the challenge from your word to us to go and feed the hungry. You feed them. I ask you, Lord, to strive with us, to work with us, that scales would fall from our eyes, that we would see the reality of a generation stepping into an eternity without you. We just thank you for the testimony of your persecuted church that would rather die than forsake you. That daily take that risk of faith to speak for you to be persecuted because they love you may their passion may their compassion impact upon us today affect and infect us to lift our eyes and our hearts to heaven and say Lord will you use me I remember that time as when I became a Christian I didn't hardly know what to say but the one prayer that I knew was here my Lord use me maybe you might like to pray that prayer where you are here am I Lord use me Holy Spirit come write these truths upon our hearts today your passion for the multitudes you feed them says the Lord to us today feed them. Now, Father, may the thoughts of our minds and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, our God and our Redeemer. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.